Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, welcome to Sibylline Podcast series. I'm Guo Yu, lead analyst of Asia Pacific. Join me today is Ignacio Ayala, our Latin American analyst. We are going to discuss the security situation in Colombia. Over the past few weeks, Colombia has seen dangerous violence escalation with an assassination attempt against the president, a vehicle bomb IED attack on a military base with the U.S. military personnel, and renewed protests in capital Bogota and several other cities. So first of all, Ignacio, before we go into the specific could you paint a general overview of the security situation in Colombia since the 2016 peace agreement? What has changed over the past five years? Hi, Hugo, and thanks for inviting me to this episode. Absolutely. Since the 2016 Parks Peace Agreements, the criminal dynamic in Colombia has shifted. Cocaine production has skyrocketed and groups has, have expanded into new territories previously controlled by the FARC. So before 2016, FARC controlled a significant part of Colombia's territory, particularly in the borders with Ecuador, Peru, and Venezuela. This is the south, the southwest to the Pacific, and the border with Venezuela in the Arauca Department and North Santander Department. That's in the east side of the country, southeast. So the group had been weakened after the United States launched the Plan Colombia, but still remained very strong. Well, strong enough to control a significant part of Colombia's territory. However, after the peace agreement, things changed. As a basic approximation, but to put it, to put it simply, FARC roughly divided into three large groups. These are Los Comunes, the political party, Gentil Duarte and Iván Mordisco's group, and the Segunda Marquetalia. So FARC EP, that the group that demobilized, entered either uh, the civilian life or the FARC political party, which is called Los Comunes, the commons. Secondly, the FARC EP columns that refused to demobilize, even though they initially entered the negotiations, had no coordination between the fronts because the leadership of the FARC had demobilized. However, Gentil Duarte, alias Gentil Duarte, the commander of the seventh front, and Ivan Mordisco, the commander of the first front, aligned both groups and started coordinating to bring together all the dissidents. This allowed the FARC dissidents to coordinate a big part of the operating groups in the southeast of the, of the Colombia territory. And actually, they recently had a major confrontation with the Venezuelan armed forces through the 10th Front, which is led by alias Arturo, forcing the Venezuelan government to retreat and grant them control of part of the smuggling routes in Apure, which is, as I said, in the southeast of Colombia. Lastly, the Segunda Marquetalia is the this third group of the FARC, which is mainly composed by Juan Marquez, the now dead commander uh, Jesus Santrich, and El Paisa. All of this had previously been major commanders in, in the FARC leadership, 
and they are now based in Venezuela and are attempting to gain control of a big part of Colombia. There is a major confrontation between Gentil Duarte and the Segunda Marquetalia as these are trying to regain control of the dissidents that Gentil Duarte uh, coordinated after the demobilization. In, as the second armed group, we have the, the ELN, the Ejército de Liberación Nacional. The ELN is an important actor right now, is one of the biggest criminal actors in Colombia, but they don't have a traditional military structure as it is decentralized, but a hierarchical structure. This has allowed the group to expand aggressively since 2016, especially in the north of Santander, and they control part, uh, part of the Pacific coasts in the northwest of Colombia, in the Chocó. But the central command's decisions, which, which are based now in Cuba, uh, are regularly challenged uh, with no major repercussions. This makes negotiations with the ELN highly unlikely to succeed. And another very important group in Colombia right now are the Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia, or also called the Urabeños, the Clan Usuga, or the, the Gulf Clan. This is a highly hierarchical criminal organization, actually the only one left in Colombia, and it's attempting to gain vertical control on the entire production and smuggling process of cocaine in Colombia. They are now the bigger threat to Colombia's defense department, and they are launching a major operation against them. I will talk to, uh, about that later. Nowadays, it's important to highlight this. All armed groups in Colombia fight to maintain control of the territory to tax drug smugglers. Ideology has not played a role in the Colombian conflicts over the past decade. So yes, that's a, basically the, the brief and very general explanation of Colombia's security context. Fascinating, Ignacio. Thank you. So especially uh, the dynamic of uh, the armed groups or, and various criminal organizations, how they shape the security landscape there. Now, as we mentioned, uh, we've seen some rather serious security incidents over the past few weeks. Why is this escalation happening right now? Uh, what sort of prompted? Yes, absolutely. There have been three major events that have escalated the security situation are, and are certainly causing concern for security analysts in, in Colombia. So the first one is a massive operation, as I previously said, against the leader of the Gulf clan. He's called uh, alias Otoniel that was launched in Urabá in mid-June. The second one is, as you said, the vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, basically a car bomb that was used against a military base with U.S. personal presence in Cúcuta. And the third one was an attack against the, the president, Iván Duque, also in Cúcuta. So in the first one, it's really important to say that Colombian military forces have increased pressure on the Gulf plan as they are attempting to capture or kill alias Otoniel. He is the last one of his family still in liberty and he is leading the group. This group has previously promoted plans such as the Plan Pistola or 
the pistol plan in which they basically pay people to kill police officers. This is likely to create a violent ex escalation in Antioquia or possibly in Cúcuta as they are expanding to Cúcuta over the, the past month. Uh, secondly, about the, the car bomb that was used against the 30th Brigade of the Colombian Army, it's really important to notice that even though the defense minister said that they consider that it was the ELN due to the location of the attack, the perpetrator and the motive is still not clear. This is going to be very important as it will largely condition the, the next scenarios and how violence could escalate. We believe that as the, the Minister of Defense said, the, the perpetrator could be either the ELN in an alliance with the Segunda Marcatalia, or it's possible that Gulf clan had an implication in that attack. Lastly, the attack on President Ivan Duque that was also perpetrated in North Cúcuta last Friday will further escalate the situation. The attack wasn't likely to be directed to kill the president. It was more of a direct threat as the attackers used an automatic weapon against the president's Black Hawk, making it unlikely to succeed if the objective was to assassinate him. Still, both the motive and the perpetrator remain unknown to this moment, but the government continues to point towards the Segunda Marcatalia and the ELN. In any case, the main driver of the timing likely depends on the perpetrator. If the perpetrator was the Gulf clan, which has expanded into North Cúcuta, as I previously said, the group is probably pushing back against the Colombian army for Agamemnon II. If the perpetrators were, in fact, the ELN and the Segunda Marcatalia, the timing likely responds to the current weakness of President Ivan Duque as protests have hurt his popularity, making radical and high-cost political decisions less risky for him, as he is probably not going to be elected in 2022. Okay, interesting. So it looks like multiple factors are in play here. As we mentioned uh, in the inter uh, introduction, there's also been a lot of protests and indeed violent confrontations with the security forces that have taken place in several cities in Colombia. So again, what triggered this movement and the protests? Absolutely. To give you some context, Colombia is a highly unequal country with worrying rates of informal workers, despite having a growing middle class. The COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately affected informal workers as this could not work and had no social safety protection net. This prompted President Ivan Duque to push forward a tax reform that would increase taxes to the middle class to subsidize private consumption and reduce informality in the lower classes, or at least that was the idea. The middle class, which was also hit hard by the pandemic, reacted very aggressively against the proposal and that triggered protests across Colombia. To those protests, the two groups that joined were the lower classes that were protesting weak economic conditions and slow creation of jobs. And certainly there are organized crime groups that joined the protests, especially in Cali, 
to weaken the security forces and the government's credibility and strengthen their position in several smuggling routes. One of these routes was Cali, as it is directly connected to the port of Buenaventura, the biggest port in Colombia. And in Cali, there's a different context in balance as in the rest of the country. And that certainly was a condition that defined protests in Cali, where the murder rate is 48 per 100,000 compared to the 25 per 100,000 in the rest of Colombia. There was significantly more violence and most of the, of the deaths of the national strikes were in Cali. A second factor contributing to the levels of violence is certainly Colombian police. The highly militarized civil security forces tend to disproportionately repress protesters, ultimately causing more protests. The SMAD, it should be noted that they are adscripted to the Ministry of Defense. And lastly, some political leaders pushed the protest to hinder Duque's popularity as the elections are approaching in 2022. However, to the date, the majority of Colombians don't want protests to continue or to repeat as it had massive consequences. All right. So as you well uh, explained, a merit of factors, including underlying socioeconomic problems, that has been driving what appears to be a worsening security situation in the country. Um, so lastly, how will the political scenario likely pan out heading into 2022? Can you perhaps offer a brief outlook? Absolutely, Hugo. So basically, the leading candidate right now is Gustavo Petro, who is a left-wing candidate from the Humana Party. However, he has been hit by the protests, as I was saying before as his links with the national strike have affected his popularity, causing a 4% tumble in, in the polls. As the election of a democratic center, the current ruling party, becomes less likely, I expect center-right candidate Fajardo to continue improving. However, for this scenario to happen, a judicial process must be solved. As a brief forecast for the current security situation, Physical threats in Cúcuta are likely to remain high, to very high, as the government is expected to respond strongly to these attacks to send a message of deterrence. And renewed protests in Bogota possibly will remain with diminishing attendance and balance. Traffic disruptions and bystander risks will be elevated in the north, in Suba, and near the Portal de Americas in the southwest as protesters attempt to maintain protests alive. Protests in Cali, lastly, are unlikely to regain previous traction. However, intelligence gathering in the region will weaken severely, improving control of the port areas for organized crime. Thank you, Hugo, for everything. Thank you, Ignacio, for the fascinating and very informative insight. Next, we'll have L. Louise Scott, who will go over the key events that will take place next week and give us an overview on these. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Hugo. So looking ahead to the next week or so, there are a couple of flashpoints and ongoing developments to be aware of. Firstly, there is a risk of considerable domestic unrest in a couple of countries, one being South Africa, where there is a deadline on the 4th of July for ex-president Jacob Zuma to turn himself into the authorities. 
If this doesn't happen, then it's likely that he will be apprehended anyway, which could prompt some protests around KwaZulu-Natal. Of more immediate concern in this regard is Haiti, where violence is expected to continue in the coming weeks, uh, and it has escalated at a worrying pace with more than 13,000 people having been displaced recently. Physical threats and security threats are severe in Port-au-Prince, as disputes within the G9 criminal alliance continue to cause clashes in the streets with calls for massive lootings. So the security situation does seem likely to worsen in the next week or so at least, with humanitarian assistance coming under fire from direct attacks. Moving away from domestic unrest in these kind of instances, in Japan on the 4th of July, there is the Tokyo Metropolitan Assembly election, which is seen by many as a prelude to the lower house election, which is legally required to be held before the 22nd of October this year. If the ruling Liberal Democrat Party and its coalition partner fail to secure a sufficient number of seats in the vote on Sunday, then Prime, Prime Minister Suga will likely delay calling for parliamentary elections until after the summer in order to address the mounting criticism over his government's handling, not just of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also a slow vaccine rollout. A poor showing in the Tokyo Assembly poll will also raise concerns over his re-election chances, given the 2021 leadership contest. And it could also bring Japan's longer term policy stability into question. Finally, again, one to be aware of sort of in the background, there are ongoing multinational naval exercises in the Black Sea as part of the annual sea breeze exercise. So this will continue all of next week and will certainly be something to keep an eye on, given the recent developments in tensions between the UK and Russia, with Moscow claiming last week that it fired warning shots at the British destroyer HMS Defender. So essentially, there is a small risk of, of some low level skirmishes but essentially that the main fallout will be a continuation of heightened regional tensions. So that's all for the main events in the week ahead. If you want to get in touch to discuss anything you've heard in today's podcast, please do via email at info at or indeed do get in touch on LinkedIn. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>